Since time immemorial, humans have been living in harmony with the seas and from their bounty. The ocean provides us with food, salt, mineral resources, transportation routes, as well as a myriad of other services, namely how it provides us with much of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. And one of the sea's most important living resource, at least from a tangible human viewpoint, is fish. The livelihoods of over 800 million people worldwide depend directly or indirectly upon fisheries, and about 20% of humankind's nutritional needs are met from the sea in one form or another. Today, many of these services are under threat, which is why it's time to develop approaches for more sustainable use of our global ocean. Gwei, hello, and welcome to Bhutan, Our Living Ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today our topic explores some of the history of commercial fishing in Atlantic Canada over the last 500 years or so. And throughout the next few episodes, we're going to focus on the past, the present, and what it might mean for our future. We'll start with fish and how we can use them more sustainably. Today's special guest is Dr. Jeffrey Hutchings, a professor of biology at Dalhousie University, who has extensive knowledge on the fisheries in Atlantic Canada. So I'm very happy to have him here with us today. So together, let's dive in. Jeff, thanks so much for being here with us today. We greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, if we get right into it, Let's start by discussing a little bit about the differences between the fishing methods from the last 500 years or so. And for anyone wondering, those 500 years essentially represent when European fishing fleets started arriving in larger and larger numbers in Mi'kma'ki, Nunatuvut, Nunatsiavut, and beyond. Yeah, I, so it's uh, really the, the history of fishing methods is, uh, is all about a history of available knowledge and technology as it existed in each of those centuries. And uh, if we go back to sort of a thousand years ago or 1500 years ago, Aboriginal peoples would have been using very basic but effective tools, spears um, uh, in fresh water, baited hooks, a very standard means of catching fishes. As we discussed in the previous episode, the Mi'kmaq people have inhabited the coastal regions for thousands of years and developed a rich culture that builds on the local environment and resources. Regulations placed on harvesting practices, including time of harvest, areas of harvesting, and who would harvest were all tied to annual migration between fishing and hunting grounds. And these migrations were in turn determined by the seasons and local weather, resource availability, and transportation routes. The philosophy of the harvest ensured that one should not take more than necessary for survival in order to ensure that there were resources left for future use, that the natural bounty was provided by the creator for self-support and well-being of the individual and the community at large. This is still known today as Netigalimp. And indeed, the first Europeans in Atlantic Canada would have been the um, those from Greenland, the, the Norwegians, uh, the Icelandic Norse people on the northeast coast of uh, northwest coast of Newfoundland. They almost certainly would have fished for cod, but they would have used baited hooks. And indeed, if we go back to the first major influx of Europeans to eastern Canadian waters, that was the primary gear that they used. So they would have a, a hook made out of iron 
Um, they would typically bait it with uh, with uh, salted herring or some cod guts, or fish guts of some nature, lower it over the side of a vessel, and try to catch cod or other fishes in that manner. So very basic, very useful and reliable technology for the time. And the time here is for the early Europeans, we're talking the late 1400s and early 1500s. So it allowed you to catch fish, but uh, it wasn't uh, didn't result in tons of fish. But as we go through the centuries, we see the types of fishing gear that were that was used change quite dramatically over time. So as we go through the different types of fishing gear and how it changed over time, we also have to keep in mind that the vessel size uh, increased a lot. Um, so the capacity to haul gear changed. So in terms of the baited hooks, earliest fishing gear by the Europeans, uh, as I say, late 1400s, early 1500s, that's still used today. So that type of gear, uh, effective then, it's effective today. And it's probably the most conservation-oriented or conservation-compatible type of fishing gear available today. So that gives us a bit of a hint to suggest that the types of fishing that was under play back uh, 500 years ago wasn't that dramatically influential on the environment. But as time progressed, some nets were used. So, so nets started to be used in the 1500s and 1600s. These were effectively used as what we would call purse seines today. So very, very large nets that would be draped between two small boats in inshore waters, and the two boats would drag that big net towards the shore and gather up fish, much the way that purse-saners do to catch herring and mackerel today. So these were seines that were used primarily to catch cod in inshore waters, and they were a lot more effective than single baited hooks. You could catch a lot of fish in a relatively short period of time. And then in the, the roughly the late 1700s, so we're progressing through the centuries here, we, started, we start to see a change from a single baited hook to uh, multi-hooked lines, sort of the beginning of what we would call the long line fishery today. You've got many lines coming off a, a central line, so many accessory lines, each of them are baited. And these essentially rest on the bottom to catch, again, things such as cod. So we've gone then from single baited hooks to multiple baited hooks attached to a single piece of fishing gear, what we call line, line trawls or long lines today. And the first vessels would typically have uh, 20, 25 of these line trawls um, on a single piece of gear but that increased over time to upwards of 100 of these hooks uh, on a single piece of gear a century later. And in the 1840s, 1850s, we start to see these seines uh, be made shorter, and they were then used in a way that we would set a gill net today. They were called cod nets initially. And so these would be, uh, how long? They would be about, a, you know, maybe 100 meters long and maybe two meters in depth, and they would be set on the bottom. And the way that a gill net works is it's kind of like an apron 
of mesh. And the cod or the fish uh, swims towards that mesh. And if it's, if it's too small, I mean, its likelihood of getting caught depends on the size of the fish and the size of the mesh. So if it's quite a small fish, it could swim through the mesh if it's quite big. If the fish is a lot bigger than the mesh, then it will simply bounce off and won't get caught. And so ideally, from a fishing perspective, you want size of mesh to cap to reflect the size of fish that you want. And these gill nets were made out of cotton initially. Um, as I say, set in roughly the 1840s, 1850s is when they were first introduced. This was another effective way of catching fish. Then some people had the idea in the 1870s, maybe we can take these bottom set gill nets and make a box out of them. Put it close to shore and we'll put a long leader from the box uh, going towards shore such that the cod or, or salmon for that matter might be swimming along the shore. They would hit that leader that would direct them into the box and then you could haul up the box. Well, that was the beginning of what was called the cod trap. And uh, the trap was used to catch salmon and cod uh, beginning in the 1870s. Now, around that time, we started to see a big change in fishing vessels. You would typically have a fairly large vessel, you know, initially and, and mainly using sails as the power with smaller boats. Uh, eventually, um, these highly maneuverable dories uh, were introduced in the 1870s. So you'd have a large vessel, several smaller boats called dories uh, that would fish by themselves. But then in the 1890s, there was a change to from wind to the first example of uh, coal-burning, uh, steam-driven trawlers. And these were fishing vessels that were relatively large, they would tow a net, not from the back of the boat, but from the side of the boat. So these are called side trawlers. And side trawlers were increasingly common through the first half of the 20th century, but there were limits as to how big the nets could be, because the uh, if you're hauling in a lot of weight from the side of the vessel, you might tip the vessel and uh, if, if the weight is too big. So from an engineering perspective, there was a need to figure out, can we perhaps tow a net from behind the vessel? And would that allow us to uh, tow a bigger net and catch more fish? Well, the end result was a successful experiment on the Grand Banks in Newfoundland in 1954 Scottish company uh, built a vessel called the Fair Try, and it did some test, test fishing on the Grand Banks in 1954, very successful. So that was the advent of the stern-driven, the back-driven um, trawlers uh, that then really took over the fisheries in the late 50s and throughout the 60s and 70s, and, and of course, exist around the world today. Whew. So the fair try, the first stern trawler, was 200 feet long and 2,600 gross tons, over six times longer than some of our traditional Cape Islander fishing vessels, and over 185 times the size in terms of overall volume of the gross tonnage. And in one hour, these vessels could catch up to 200 tons of fish, 
twice as much as the typical fishing boat from the 16th century would have caught in an entire season, in one hour. By 1970, there were around 700 of these big factories fishing the seas. And there are still some of these factories being built today, the latest being 81.6 meters, almost 270 feet long. In a nutshell then, in 500 years, we went from single baited hooks from small boats that had a minuscule, perhaps negligible effect on the environment to very massive factory freezer trawlers uh, capable of catching almost unimaginable amounts of fish, dragging nets along the bottom, and uh, increased sophistication through, uh, through sonar technology to determine where fish and fish weren't. So technological change is the, is the key word over the at half, uh, half of a millennium. So Jeff, the removal of fish, the catch, it was really only one part of the story, correct? These trawlers were quite literally plowing the bottom to capture the fish, at times destroying the habitat of the very fish they were trying to catch. So in your opinion, what role does the habitat destruction play in terms of harm to the fishery? Well, I think the answer to that question very much depends on, on where the nets are being towed. Um, so the type of bottom in our oceans varies a lot. So we've got very sensitive habitat. All right, let me interject really quickly here. Habitat is simply the natural home or the environment where a plant or animal lives and grows. And these can vary from near tidal eelgrass beds to deep sea coral or even pelagic open ocean areas. And an organism's habitat or home may change based on its age and its life cycle. Very detailed uh, deep sea corals and sponges and... Whoa, okay, hold on now. Corals and sponges? Now, we're not talking about coral reefs that exist in the warm, tropical waters of the Caribbean. What we're talking about here are deep sea, cold water corals that are living organisms that live just offshore of our Atlantic provinces. And like their tropical coral cousins, they also provide important habitat for countless organisms. In other words, corals and sponges that are quite old, and if you destroy them, they are not going to recover in, in a short period of time. So very sensitive habitats, sensitive organisms. Uh, but then we've got other types of habitat that uh, perhaps have, have plants associated with them or physical structure, rocks um, that serve uh, to perhaps as hiding places for fishes. These can be removed and altered uh, and destroyed under some circumstances by bottom trawlers. And then at the other extreme, we've got uh, stretches of ocean, and the Grand Banks is a good example of this, where it's a relatively flat, uh, gravelly, hard bottom, um, where uh, it seems that bottom trawling has, has some impact on the, the life of the Grand Banks on the bottom, but it seems that its uh, biological communities can recover relatively quickly. It might take two or three years without trawling for something to recover. So I think at the end of the day, these bottom trawlers definitely affect the structure of bottoms. Um, it can affect the, uh, the biology and the species persistence, the likelihood that species will be able to live on the bottom. Um, but it really depends on the bottom type. 
And for some species, as I say, for corals and sponges, one sweep through of a, a trawling net can destroy a biological community for decades and maybe longer. But then on other types of bottom habitat, it could be that you can tow nets much more regularly and have somewhat less of an impact. Now, I hope you were listening to that last part, that the impact of some fishing methods varies based on location, raising a very important point that these areas need to be mapped, whether sensitive or not. But we'll get into that a little bit more in the next episode. So now, beyond the fishing methods, there was one invention that would have made an impact on the fishery, and that was the invention of nylon and other plastic polymers, now used almost exclusively in nets, lines, and traps. Jeff, how would the change from cotton and hemp to various types of plastic impact the fishery and the ocean? Yes. Um, so the type of twine that was used uh, to make gill nets and to make cod traps changed in the early 60s. So from for about 100 years, the material being used was cotton. And the thing about cotton um, the good thing from a conservation perspective is that it doesn't last that long. It breaks down after being in the water for a long period of time. So that's not so good from a fishery perspective because you need to keep rebuilding and repairing the cotton uh, nets. But it's good from an ecosystem perspective if you should lose your gear, which often happens because that cotton will break down. And when we say lose... As we'll soon describe, we also mean cut, either while trying to escape pursuit while illegally fishing, as was happening back in the 1990s with the turbot wars, or cut by rival fishers during the cod or lobster wars, some of which is still going on to this day. And not to worry for those that might be very interested, we'll chat a little bit more about ghost gear in a future episode about pollution. This change ultimately from cotton to these polymer-based materials to make gill nets help the fishermen because it was a stronger material, it was more durable, they uh, didn't have to repair the gear to the same extent, but it wasn't very good from an environmental perspective because if you lost the gear, and to be fair, fishing gear is lost for all kinds of reasons, uh, uh, reasons that are uncontrollable by the fishermen, uh, winds, storms, uh, tidal surges, and so on. So you might lose that gear. The problem with these uh, nylon gill nets is that they keep fishing, or they often can keep fishing, uh, meaning that uh, they could, and studies have shown that these nylon nets can continue to fish, and we call them ghost nets or ghost fishing, um, for quite a long period of time after they have been lost. The other thing to realize with these gill nets is that if a fish gets caught in a gill net, it will die probably within 24 hours after having been caught. So it's not as though the net fills up with dead fish. Shortly after death, the fish in these nets are eaten by crabs, and lobster, and all kinds of other organisms. So uh, that, in essence, frees up space for other fishes to be caught in the future. So the big challenge from an environmental and ecosystem perspective associated with these nylon uh, monofilament gill nets is that if you lose the gear, uh, the gear has great potential to continue to fish. And in an uncontrolled manner, 
And it's really challenging for us to estimate how big of a threat that is. Now, as we discussed fishing in international conflicts, there were various laws and regulations that came into play in the last 38 years and beyond that in the 60s and the 70s for some countries, especially the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS. And we're going to have an episode on who owns the high seas in the future. But can you briefly describe some of these international agreements on how they affected the fishery, keeping in mind the 700 or so factory fishing trawlers in the sea, many of which fished under foreign flags within just 12 nautical miles of our coastline or less? Yeah, so the UN has had tremendous influence over the history of fishing in Canada and in other coastal nations. And indeed, the first major influence was through the United the UN's Convention on the Law of the Sea. Now to clarify, the UN or the United Nations is an intergovernmental organization that aims to maintain international peace and security and to develop friendly relations among nations, generally countries. And there's approximately 193 member states, leaving about 54 countries or states not currently part of the United Nations. And what that did is it extended the economic jurisdiction of coastal countries uh, from 12 nautical miles to 200 nautical miles. And that occurred in 1977. Now, what that means is that Canada was the only country allowed to fish in those waters, meaning that vessels from other countries, although able to pass through, are not legally allowed to fish without permission. That changed the characteristics of coastal fisheries dramatically. So, for example, in Canada, well, prior to there being a 12 nautical mile limit, there was a six mile limit, and earlier than that, there was a three mile limit. And many coastal fishing communities recall when the big fishing trawlers were first coming over from Europe to eastern Canada, is they would describe uh, cities, uh, floating cities lit up, the lights lit up at night just off their shores. And they were able to fish so close to our coasts because of the fact that these were international waters. So what the UN's Convention on the Law of the Sea did is it pushed those foreign fleets away from our shores by extending Canada's jurisdiction to 200 nautical miles as opposed to 12. Now, this area is known as the Exclusive Economic Zone, or the EEZ. And in case you're wondering, 200 nautical miles is equal to about 370 kilometers. The conversion's around 1.8 kilometers per nautical mile versus the 1.6 for a regular old mile. That there was a second key uh, UN agreement, and that's the 1995 UN Fish Stocks Agreement. So almost 20 years after we extended our jurisdiction to 200 nautical miles, the UN's Fish Stocks Agreement stipulated that the precautionary approach would be applied to sustainable fisheries management in Canada and every other country that signed on to this accord. And by incorporating the precautionary approach, uh, I mean, there's many details associated with that, but from a fishery management perspective, it comes down to three key things. First of all, for each fishery, you need to set a baseline level of population size below which a population should not go. Otherwise, it, it might never recover. You should also set a target for each stock, each fish group. Um, in other words, a target so that everyone knows 
what you're trying to achieve, especially if a stock becomes depleted? What is it you're aiming for? And the third component for incorporating the precautionary approach has to do with governing the level of fishing effort, depending on whether the stock is close to its limit, the danger zone or the critical zone, or whether it's close to its target. So in other words, an established sort of set of rules for how hard to fish a stock, depending on how far away it is from your target. So that UN Fish Stocks Agreement led the way to changes in Canada's sustainable fishing policies, but <laughs> almost 30 years later, we're still uh, in the weak implementation phase of those policies. So as we discuss foreign fleets, there's something that's called illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, or IUUs, something that the turbot wars of the 1990s was based on. Jeff, do you think that this is something that's still going on in Canada? And if so, to what extent? I don't think it's a huge issue today. It has been in the past. There's no question that once the trawlers starting started to come fishing in Canadian waters, that there was a lot of unreported catches, a lot of fish that weren't considered large enough were thrown overboard, thrown back. And, and these were fish that weren't going to live. Uh, but they also weren't reported because they weren't caught, if you will. It was essentially an unregulated fishery off the coast of Canada. Um, I mean, there were quotas started to be set in the 1970s, but there was no way of enforcing those quotas. So we had at least uh, well, two decades of unregulated trawler fishing with tons of unreported catches, and which led to a severe overexploitation of many of our fish stocks through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Today, it's, it's much more regulated. All of this is under Canadian control, under the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. It's not to say that there isn't still some illegally caught fish. Um, almost certainly there is, and some unreported uh, catches. But I strongly suspect that it's um, a very small percentage of what it was in the past. And I, I don't think it's likely to represent a major problem from a conservation perspective today. And to clarify once again, that's in Canadian waters. And we're not talking about other countries or international waters, although this is an issue. But this does lead into the next thing I want to cover, and that's of bycatch or discards, the definition of which can vary from country to country. But how does that fit in in terms of sustainable harvest? Where it fits in, so bycatch in, in general would simply mean... Um, a species that you're catching that you hadn't intended to catch. So you've got a quota, perhaps, for catching haddock, and then you end up catching some pollock or some cod or some flatfish as well. Um, those other species are bycatch. In some circumstances, you can sell that, and some you can't. Now, for some fisheries, such as herring, you can often get very low levels of bycatch in those fisheries, because the fisheries target herring schools. And these schools of herring tend to include only herring. So there are some fisheries that are able to minimize bycatch, but others, especially those that use gill nets on the bottom or that tow nets along the bottom, uh, will tend to catch other species. So ideally, if you are trying to manage fisheries from an ecosystem perspective and to 
minimize the harm on the ecosystem, you would ideally minimize uh, the catch of species that you hadn't intended to catch. Because our fisheries generally are managed on the basis of reliable catch information, if there's a lot of discarding, that means there's a lot of catch that won't be recorded and we will miss that when we're trying to determine what sustainable levels of catch should be. So if we shift gears a little bit and talk about how we tend to perceive things differently on a generation-by-generation basis, something that's been called shifting baselines or shifting baseline syndrome, a term that was coined by marine biologist Daniel Pauly back in 1995, can we discuss that a little bit with a few modern-day examples? I know from my point of view, living in Newfoundland for a decade and fishing cod as part of the food fishery, I often experience this phenomenon by listening to the multi-generational banter, especially when contemplating fish size. So how does that affect the commercial fishery and the regulations? Yeah, so the shifting baseline syndrome basically can be described as a situation in which people, say, living today, and these could be from a fishery perspective, they could be uh, fishers, it could be fishing managers, could be politicians, could be the industry, could be anybody who's living today, will look back within their own lifetime or their own set of experiences, maybe the experiences of their, of their family, uh, to, to get a sense of the history of, of the fishery in question. And so, for example, um, people fishing in the 1950s or 60s would have, you know, sort of judged their catches based upon what their parents and, 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 and ancestors had caught before them to determine are things better now? Are they about the same or are they worse? What's happening today is that what the shift comes uh, insofar as, as generations move through time, they tend to lose and steadily lose that historical context. They don't know, you know, today uh, people might be unaware of what of how many fish there were in the 1940s or the 50s or even the 60s. But in the 1980s, let's go back to 1977 when the UN extended its jurisdiction to 200 nautical miles. The 1950s was pretty fresh in people's minds and people realized how enormous the catches could be because they truly were enormous catches in the 50s and 60s. Today, almost nobody talks about the 50s and 60s. When people talk today about reopening closed fisheries or the status of various fisheries today, they're often only going they're going back 30 years, perhaps, but that's only which sounds like a long time, but that's only going back to the 1990s. And that's a period when many fish stocks in, in Canadian waters were at really low levels. So that is really not a good baseline against which to judge uh, the health of fisheries today. So this shifting baseline has great potential to shift our priorities, our perceptions about how healthy or how not healthy our our fish stocks are. And um, it underscores the importance of taking a long-term view on the health of our ecosystems and our fisheries. Now, through the collapse of the various fisheries, both past and present, what have we learned or failed to learn? Well, I think one thing that we have learned, which sounds surprising, uh, 
perhaps to say today, but is that we can overfish. We can uh, remove too many fish uh, such that fish stocks decline and are not sustainable at, at past catch levels. Um, what have we failed to learn? I think we have, uh, what we have seen in the past has been a series of management measures that were ad hoc. It wasn't clear that there were long-term plans or long-term thresholds or objectives or goals for our various fisheries. It was very much what's happening this year compared to last year. Again, in terms of a shifting baseline, <laughs> the baselines back then were literally one or two years earlier. And let's think about what might happen one or two years in the future. So it was very, very short term time frame that lacked measurable, quantifiable goals and objectives. The UN Fish Stocks Agreement and the idea of incorporating a precautionary approach was intended to, to meet that deficiency by saying, we should have targets, we should have limits, we should have plans. And the striking thing is, is that we still don't have targets for more than half of our fisheries in Canada. We have limits uh, for about 60% of our fisheries, and those limits are, are meant to be sort of thresholds. In other words, if a fish stock has fallen below its limit level of abundance, uh, in Canada we call that the critical zone. And if fish stocks fall into that critical zone, then in theory, we should be taking all measures possible to stop fishing on those depleted stocks. But we have situations today where we're actually fishing a number of our stocks that, have, that are in that depleted critical zone. And so it seems that we, we haven't quite learned that the only thing that we can control is fishing effort. It's the only thing. We can't control the ecosystem. We can't control species interactions. The only thing we can control is how much we catch. And it seems that this sort of ad hoc nature of fisheries management is still evident in some of our fisheries. And it seems that it remains rather difficult, perhaps surprisingly difficult to establish long-term plans or what we would like to achieve, what our targets are for, uh, for various fisheries. Because this is an ocean show, I've mainly focused on certain species of finfish that live in the ocean. But there's a number of fish that use both fresh and marine waters for parts of their lives, known as the diadromous fish, either anadromous or ketadromous. Anadromous spawn or have babies in fresh water before returning to salt water, such as Atlantic salmon, Atlantic sturgeon, and others. And the catadromous, such as the American eel, that spend most of their lives in freshwater, but spawn in the ocean. And many of these have suffered a similar fate to the previous fish we've been talking about. But do you think that the diadromous fish are a bit more complicated to deal with in terms of management? I think it is fair to say that it is more challenging to manage fisheries on these fishes, such as the eels, the sturgeon, the salmon that use both freshwater and marine habitats. And the primary reason for that is that when they are in freshwater, they are really heavily dependent on high quality habitat. 
In other words, the habitat that they experience in the rivers and the streams and the lakes in which they live has a huge influence on, on their ability to live and to survive to a much greater extent than, than when they're in the ocean. And it's more challenging to manage the freshwater because it's closer to human activity. It's closer to the development of land. Uh, it's easier to obstruct the passage of water by building dams, for example. And so I think the biggest challenge in, in managing those fishes that use both the salt and fresh water is the challenge in managing um, the habitat of those fishes and the humans. <laughs> now, on a similar note, so that we're not focusing completely on finfish, there are other types of fish in the ocean, including shellfish like crustaceans or other invertebrates. What are the other types of ocean organisms that we harvest and what's happening there on a population level? Well, I would start by, by making the point, and this is a point that we tend, we tend not to, a lot of, even a lot of scientists don't tend to think of this as a point of departure. But my point of departure is to realize that whatever we're seeing today and what we call natural change or the natural environment has been heavily altered by our overfishing of the past. So it's, a, it's an environment, it's an ecosystem that has been... Okay, let me pause and define ecosystem before we keep going, because an ecosystem is pretty neat. And really simply, an ecosystem is a community of living things and non-living things that interact as a system to form a bubble of life. So think of your community, the people, the animals, the food, the weather, as your ecosystem. Ecosystem that has been heavily influenced by overfishing. And what I mean by that is that many of our fishes are at fractions of levels of what they were in the 60s and 70s. In other words, they have dropped by 80, 90, 95%. And what that has done is it had, so the, these fishing induced depletions have altered the ecosystem and it's, there's been some good news stories for some species. So for example, as we deplete um, top predators or highly predatory fishes or fish species, the things that they used to feed upon or that they still feed upon suddenly don't have as many predators and they're able to increase in abundance because of the lower predation. And that's thought to be the reason why things such as shrimp and snow crab and perhaps lobster have done have tended to do much better since the collapse of our fish stocks than they did previously um, so some species have have uh, not done well uh, some species have thrived but the extent to which this is uh, sort of a response to natural change as opposed to past Fishing-induced change remains an open question. Now, a word of caution here, because we did mention lobster. I would urge our listeners to think about the shifting baseline syndrome, as we mentioned earlier, and go back to our previous episode, how we discussed that lobsters were so plentiful centuries ago that children caught them by wading in the shallows. All right, so we've been talking about the collapse of the fisheries, and I hate to be completely negative because it tends to paralyze people into a state of inaction, myself included. So let's try to finish off on a more positive note. Let's start with the Marine Stewardship Council, or the MSC certification. 
as you know, it's a label that goes in the box or package of fish that more or less certifies that it was caught in a way that will minimize harm to the environment or to the population. Now, as an example, most of our lobster fishery in Atlantic Canada is MSC certified for sustainability. So Jeff, how do you see that or similar entities affecting our ocean? Is it a step in the right direction? Yes, I think it's unquestionably been a step in the right direction. There have been hiccups along the way, no question about it. But what the Marine Stewardship Council process has attempted to do is to identify fisheries throughout the world that are deemed sustainable, that have attributes associated with them that protect ecosystems, limit bycatch, reduce discards, and and all of these various things that we've been talking about that should lead to ecologically responsible fishing. Uh, I say there's been hiccups along the way because there have been some fisheries that almost certainly should not have been certified, although they were certified. But I think that these types of efforts, um, while none of them are perfect, in the long term, um, they can lead, and I think to be objective, they have led to greater levels of of sustainability in some fisheries. And it's led to improvements in some fisheries in parts of the world as well, who parts of the um, developing world, for example, where um, there's been investments into improving those fisheries such that they're at a level or they they can be brought up to a level at which they might be um, able to pass MSC certification. And I guess a third way to think about how this is a positive factor has to do with the observation that a number of uh, food retailers that wish to promote sustainability are using these certified um, products as a means of encouraging consumers to to be able to uh, purchase things that they can have a greater confidence come from a, a sustainable source. Now, because this show is in part funded by the Government of Canada's Ocean Protection Plan, I want to briefly touch on Canada's ocean strategy and what role that plays. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Canada's ocean strategies has, have been changing over time, and um, there has been some very good text, very good policies, very good strategies um, in place. We have, for example, wild salmon policy off the coast of British Columbia. We have policies for the protection of wild fishes in in Canadian waters. We have the Oceans Act, which was a precursor to setting up marine protected areas. And uh, many people saw that as a a very useful means of implementing conservation measures. Although again, perhaps things haven't been implemented to the extent that some might have wished. Canada's strategy has also involved uh, increased protection of Canada's coastal waters, although, to be fair, that's been largely driven by our international obligations to uh, conserve biodiversity. Insofar as um, Canada has been attempting to, to meet various international targets for protecting various percentages of our coastal waters. But by the same token, there's You know, the recent amendments to the Fisheries Act in 2019 uh, acknowledged greater responsibility and involvement by Indigenous communities and Aboriginal communities. There have been, uh, there's been, there were measures in there to involve uh, 
well, to stipulate that the minister uh, should devise rebuilding plans for stocks that are in the critical zone that re require rebuilding. So these are measures that weren't there prior to 2019. So there has been some statutory and policy changes that I think everyone would agree are in the right directions. But it's a question, I think, of, of, of action and what one does in, uh, in an attempt to meet the objectives of our laws and our policies and regulations. As a final question, as we prepare to wrap up, in your opinion, if we could do anything today and into the future, what could we do to ensure that we can continue to harvest from the ocean for generations to come? Well, I think about this a lot, and I think it, it really depends on where we live in this country. And, um, and I say that insofar as it seems that the closer one lives to an ocean, the more one knows about the ocean, the more one cares about the ocean and its health, its past, its present, its future. And yet Canada has the longest coastline in the world. We have one of the largest territorial seas in the world. And our laws, including those related to fisheries, state that the fisheries you know belong to the, the people of Canada our oceans belong to the people of Canada the supreme court of canada has, has stated that it's the minister's responsibility to manage the fisheries on behalf of all canadians and i think this is something that is part of the narrative that kind of gets missed that we should care more about our oceans our uh, most of our oxygen that we breathe comes from our oceans. The oceans are a tremendous sink for the carbon that we're producing. They're a tremendous source of local food and protein. And, of course, they're, they're vital to the sustenance of coastal, many coastal communities and coastal jobs. But they should be viewed, at least if I was to look ahead, a positive thing would be to encourage other Canadians to view our oceans in the same way that they view the boreal forest. Many, many Canadians would say, oh, the forests, that's a key characteristic of, of Canada. Um, the mountains, our, our raw landscape, you know, that's a key element. Our freshwater lakes and rivers, that's a key resource and something I want to protect in Canada because it's part of who we are. The Arctic as well. Why not the oceans? The oceans if they're not going to be part of a national narrative, it's going to be very difficult to make uh, national politicians, for example, or national decision makers care um, and perhaps act wisely in terms of our long-term future of our oceans. So to me, it's, it's an awareness element and recognition that oceans and fisheries are not simply coastal issues, they're not small-scale local issues. They are national issues. And um, that, in my view, would be a, a great step forward if that was acknowledged. Well, what a beautiful way to finish this episode. And it ties right into what this show is really about, ocean education. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate the time that you've taken to share some of your insight with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Well, there we have it. That concludes our episode for today. Hopefully we'll see each of our listeners again soon as next time we'll be looking at a plan for a brighter future. Well, adios.
Executive producer for the Utan Our Living Ocean series is Roger Hunk, with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today's special guest was Dr. Jeffrey Hutchings. The song Broken Reed in English, written by George Edward Chevery, performed by Cleveland Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Elder Catherine Sorby, with administrative support by Michelle Bernard. Production support provided by the Government of Canada, specifically Transport Canada's Indigenous and Local Communities Engagement and Partnership Program, through Canada's Ocean Protection Plan. All rights reserved. It's a healthy wind coming to heal your water world. Injured can you hear the eagle cry high above the storm?